armored knowing that there is spiritual warfare that takes place. That there is an enemy, there is a deceiver, an accuser, Satan, the devil that the Bible talks about. even talks about the origin of him and the final destination of Satan who has great power in this season but will be limited. In fact, one of the things that we looked at is John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, how he laid out for the Christian who is going down to the celestial kingdom and there alongside the path going to the kingdom were lions that were chained on either side and that the only place or the only safe place for the Christian to go is to follow the line, the line being Christ. And as long as he remains on the line uh, of Christ, the lions of Satan cannot reach him. I've shared with you before that there is such a thing as demonizing behavior. There is demonizing influence. We talk about the word demonic possession, but the Bible really uses the word demonizing. Not such a a state of uh, being fully controlled by Satan as much as degrees of the influence of Satan and his, um, his followers, the demons, the angelic beings that fell away from God, who are numerous, Uh, along with the spirit of this age, matched with the sinful, rebellious spirit that's within our own heart. These form a triple threat against Christ. But the Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That though the opposition be mighty and powerful, there is a spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, that is mightier still and will ultimately prevail. And so what does that mean? Well, you let that Spirit of Christ rule in your heart, rule in your thinking, how you view others. So consequently, we do not see flesh and blood as the enemy. But we see that there is a spiritual force underneath that determines what happens. So that takes us to Ephesians 6, verse 10. As we looked at this last week, we will find ourselves... Uh, focusing on verse 15 and verse 16, uh, if we have time, uh, allows that. So in, in honor of this being God's word, I'm going to ask that we stand as we read together Ephesians 6, beginning with verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel, 
for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. You may be seated. So as we've approached the spiritual armor, the point that I've brought to, to, for you to think through as a, is strength to stand, knowing that Satan is attacking the wiles or the methods of Satan that is at our face, strength to stand is only found in Christ, applied in our heart and mind. In other words, you can't just know about Christ. You can't just read about Christ. You have to apply the truth of who Christ is and what he's said and what he's promised to our heart, to our mind. Christ unapplied is not Christ living in our life. And this is done through the help of the Holy Spirit and instructed through God's word. That's how we know who Christ is to begin with, is through his word. And so he takes this this metaphor of knowing that we're wrestling with Satan and that there's armor to say this is how Christ works in our life. This is how he influences us in our thinking. And so as we kept on looking, we looked last week at the belt of truth that this is the, uh, what brings us together, brings the armor together, that is what holds us. And so we use that as Christ applied as our identifying reality, that this is what holds us to who we are, that we're held fastened by truth. And so what does that mean is that how we identify ourselves is truth. Not anything lesser to say this is who I am, including even our gender. Have you ever thought about that? That even our gender is not what is the chief identifying thing for the believer in Christ, that it is Christ and his truth applied to us to say, above all things, I belong to Christ. Before I'm a man, before I'm a woman, I belong to Christ. In our world, we like to identify ourselves constantly by our performance, by our work. And this is even good things. One of the things I was counseling with a a man this week is that he has identified himself as a dad, as a father, but now he's looking at the real reality, the possibility of losing his children, and he did not know what to do with his life. To say, look, there is another identifier that is greater than even being a dad. That is to be in Christ. What does that mean? The belt of truth. And then we looked at having on, uh, putting on the breastplate of righteousness. This is Christ applied as our accepted morality. There is what we call righteousness that is given to us, the imputed righteousness. And just think of the, the nice cut form of the Roman chest, the Roman breastplate with all the abdominal muscles there, the pectorals, that doesn't matter how flabby you are on the inside, you put that on, you look, you look cut. That is to say there is imputed righteousness. God has given us right standing with him that is not based on our performance, our ability. But then there is also implied within this that there is now a new morality, a new standard for our life that is Christ-likeness. That with the help of the Holy Spirit, he is moving us, forming us into the image of the breastplate. All right? Uh, to say that we are moved into Christ-likeness and it is a gradual process of the Word of God and the Spirit of God convicting us, uh, bringing humility into our life and helping us to become Christ-like. The standard of our righteousness is not Abraham, not Moses, not David. All these were frail 
pictures of reality and we see the sin in their life. The standard for righteousness is Christ. And the Spirit of Christ is in our life moving us in that direction. And so to say that is our standard for what is right and wrong. There's the breastplate of righteousness. Let me just say to you that as Paul is doing this, there's a lot of Old Testament pictures he's picking up for this. An example here is in Isaiah 59 verse 14. You might want to write that down, Isaiah 59, verse 14 through 17. And you see the picture of breastplate of righteousness that is given in Isaiah 59, specifically verse 17, that Paul is using in his word. And now we come to verse 15. The shoes for your feet. This is what I'm going to say Christ applied as our gospel sharing mobility. Gospel sharing mobility. Uh, you know, often as we hear the, the spiritual armor, a lot of times a big deal is brought out by the fact that there's one offensive weapon that is the sword of the Spirit. Uh, but the problem with that is it's, it's just not true. The shoes were also offensive weapon. In fact, it's key to moving your troops in battle uh, in, in impacting the the war front, that your troops have movement, which is wholly, largely dependent on your shoes. Uh, if you think about it, the, the Roman shoe, uh, the sandal, uh, was meant for protection. Uh, as being in the battlefront, there would be uh, uh, sometimes spikes placed into the ground, uh, and you needed to have something to cover that. And so you can't march well, you can't advance well if you don't have good shoes. Uh, I try to tell my children that, but I have had very stubborn children uh, throughout, and they have a hard time understanding the beauty of a shoe, uh, especially as it relates to running around outside. I show them there's a copperhead, and they just, just they overlook these things, you know. Uh, and so as they grow up, the good news is that we've seen them see the wisdom of shoes as time goes on. Uh, and so even if they don't learn it at 7, eventually by the time they're 17, they figure it out. Uh, so somewhere in that process. Uh, and so in warfare, you can't do this without shoes. Not only were they for protection, they were for traction. The Roman uh, shoe would actually have hobnails put into the bottom of it. And so it was the very first cleat we ever have known in history is the Roman uh, sandal where it was cleated uh, for traction. Uh, and so it allowed them to have a firm place to stand. And many times in the battlefront, it would be used with shields, with the opposition directly pressing against your shield with swords in place. And so there needed to be a sure footing to withstand what was going on. And so the traction that was there, then the finally, mobility. There needed to be a light fit to them to allow them to quickly advance. Alexander the Great was the one who learned, uh, one of the ones that learned as far as foot soldiers, the ability of fleet speed to be able to maneuver his troops in the battle. Uh, and so you have these three features at work as, as we read this. Notice carefully the wording that Paul puts in here. He says, shoes for your feet. So what does it represent? Does it represent the gospel of peace? Look carefully at the grammatical structure. The object is readiness. Having put on the readiness. They represent readiness. The word readiness, it's uh, maybe more um, 
translated nimbleness. And we don't use the word nimble much. Jack be nimble, Jack be quick. Maybe is the last time we used the word nimble. But uh, a, a, an idea of sense of nimbleness, quickness of feet, you could actually just say the word spirit, uh, athletic. Shoes for your feet. To see athletic mobility, quickness of feet that comes by the gospel of peace. So you see, understanding what we're saying is that put on the athletic ability, the quickness that comes from the gospel of peace. So it's a little bit different idea than just gospel. It's the effect of what the gospel has in your life to be quick. I, I uh, grew up, I was in middle school, uh, about 86 through 88. Um, and in that time, for those of us who are basketball fan, fans, that was the height of Michael Jordan introducing the Air Jordan. And I was one of the target audience. And I firmly believed, even though I was in middle school, if I could just get that shoe, then I could jump. (laughs) If I could just get that shoe, I could do a Michael Jordan jump. And that's what, you know, that whole ad is about. Be like Mike. Wear the shoe. And your tongue will come out as you fly in the air. It's amazing. The shoe is still very popular. Introduced when I was in middle school in that time period. And that was the whole concept of if you could just get the right shoes, then there can be a new spring in your step as you play basketball. There can be a faster speed as you run. It's amazing how that still plays. And we still get suckered by it. And like, okay, a light shoe is good. As we read this, though, there is some truth to this understanding that what type of shoes helps you have mobility, helps you to, to do some things different, and what specifically is not the Air Jordan, but the gospel of peace? All right, well, help me out here. What does that mean to have the gospel of peace, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace? Now, I mentioned to you how Paul rings back the Old Testament, and, and, and he does this in Isaiah 52, verse 7. He says, in Isaiah 52, 7, he says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And so he's thinking back to Isaiah and he says, those who have salvation as good news, how beautiful are the feet. They spread abroad what has been uh, lighting their heart with joy. You know, when we think about spiritual warfare, a lot of times our mind goes to the TV shows and think, okay, let me get my cross and let me get my holy water and let me get my special prayers. I had one pastor contact me some uh, a year or so ago and, and um, asked me, he said, is anyone in your church, are you, do you feel any special gift in this and um, spiritual warfare with demons? Um, what what do you mean? Well, there's someone that has had occultic backgrounds, um, and I'm looking for someone to go with me uh, that can do this. 
they didn't have that class in seminary. They didn't have special spiritual exorcism classes at Southeastern anyway. They might at some schools. Uh, But when I read this passage, there is something to just proclaiming the gospel. That you need not the holy water as if there was such a thing. You need not the clerical collar. You need not the special cross and you don't need garlic. But what is needed is a heart that is enlightened by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is surrendered to the control of Jesus Christ, and just proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Interesting, as we look back in missions, there was a a missionary by the name of John Nevis, uh, a missionary in Korea. Korea at that time was 0.1% Christian country. Today, it'd be somewhere between 25 to 30% of Christian country that actually happened in just a few decades. But John Nevis, as a missionary, said he met a lot of demon possession on the field and demonic oppression on the field. He said, in the early days, I used to do hocus pocus. I used to exercise. I used to draw rings around. I used to say in the blood of Jesus and the name of Jesus. One day, I just took out the Bible and started reading the scripture. I just started planning the truth. Boom, boom, boom. He said, I kept seeing an awful lot of spiritual results more than it ever did before. I just proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. This past Monday night, we had the seniors dinner. We had Rich Paradis come and share uh, and he was uh, one that was involved in Eastway Community Church that was meeting here. And he just talked about living life on mission, sharing the gospel. What that looks like in Nightdale, what it's looked like for him. And as he talked about that, he said, you know, the church, the church, the measure of church growth, the smallest measure unit of church growth is you. And what that means is that we can't just blame the whole church or we can't take credit as a whole church. We've got to look at it personally before us with God to say that what happens in Nightdale happens because God uses one person and he does it one at a time, one at a time, and one at a time, and you are that one person. And so how is the church growing? By you. And he just talked about how there's a lot of lost people in Nightdale. And as he just shared these things and and shared his life, I just felt as if it was as a healing bomb hit my heart, a healing ointment hit my mind to say, in the midst of everything that's happening here in our church, our church exists for the gospel sharing. And one of the greatest things that we can do, regardless of what season we're in, is say, you know what, the Bible says Jesus loves you, and he loves me, and I've got sin that's in the way of that, and God has satisfied my sin by Jesus dying on the cross for me and for you, and he invites you to come and know him as Savior and Lord, to say that is the story that started this church, it's the story that keeps this church going. It is... The gospel sharing, the ability, the mobility of what the gospel does in our life. But how does the gospel bring mobility? How does it bring a spiritual athletic uh, ability to us? 
starts by saying is the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. It's been said that we are born with hatred to God. Think about that. Is that true? We were born with hatred to God, and it's how we express it. I want you to think about that in your own heart and life. It is, it's not just that we were out in the ocean drowning, and we said to a lifeguard, Oh, you're so, so powerful, you're strong, you can rescue me, please rescue me. No, we were out in the ocean saying, Lifeguard, it's your fault, we hate you. How do I say that? Because Romans says, chapter 5, that God gave his love towards us that while we were still sinners, he died for us. While we were still enemies with him, he died for us and he still rescues us. We're coming across the 500th year of the Reformation of Martin Luther, October 31st, nailing up 95 theses. And all that's changed, which by the way, the very fact that we sing like we do is a result of the work of Martin Luther. The very fact that explaining the scripture is central to how we do corporate worship is attributed to Martin Luther. There's a lot of things that are carried on from that time. But it's been said before his conversion that he was a monk and, and that he was trying to get satisfaction with God and he saw God as this judge that he never could quite live up to. And he was constantly becoming hateful of this God. He didn't love that God. He hated this God because it was always telling him uh, he was always telling him that he was wrong. He was wrong. And he tried even kissing the ground and, tre- and seeking repentance until he was reading the word of God and come across a truth that had been obscured by the traditional teachings of the church apart from the Bible. And it was just simple, this passage that he was reading in Romans, that the just live by faith. And to realize that God could declare him just if he would just trust in what Christ has done. And that had been lost to him. And when that hit his mind, God used the Holy Spirit with the word of God to lighten his heart. And produce something that had a rippling effect across the world. It was some time before it hit England and the English Reformation who King Henry VIII was basically a Catholic, but he didn't like the Pope because the Pope was telling him things like, you can't divorce. And he desperately wanted to. So he was trying to be a Catholic without the Pope, which was somewhat of a problem. But along the way, there were men that came forward that started believing some of the things that Luther was teaching, and they were starting to teach the same. In fact, tomorrow is an anniversary that happened in 1555 on October 6th of a man by the name of Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer and his friend Nicholas Ridley were burned at the stake on October 16th, 1555 on Broad Street in Oxford for their faith. Because they wouldn't recant. And they wouldn't move away from the biblical faith and give in to the status quo of what the Catholics were saying at the time. Some of you may have heard this story as the flames were coming up. Latimer turned to Ridley and said, and it's been written down, Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light up such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust never shall be put out. 1555 on October 16th tomorrow. One of their good friends was by the man by the name of Thomas Kramer. 
Thomas Kramer, seeing this happen to his friends, was greatly shaken in his own faith. The problem was he happened to be Archbishop Canterbury. He was the man that King Henry VIII would actually ask to come and pray with him as he died. But he was also became greatly influenced by these same teachings of the just shall live by faith. But seeing this, when Queen Mary came and was bringing Catholicism back, got him to recant, especially after seeing what had happened with Hugh Latimer. Nothing quite as terrible as seeing a human burned alive. And so, with his hand, he wrote out recantations of his faith. The queen had set up a public spectacle on this day that he would read aloud what he has recanted. But that night, as he was sitting by the candlelight, he was struggling in his faith and realized he could not, would not do such a thing. So he wrote out a new statement. At the reading of this statement on March 21st, 1556, this is the man who wrote most of the Book of Common Prayer, by the way. He was assigned to be burned. Later on, he publicly got up and said, I was wrong, I was a traitor. He took back his rancantation. So he's put in prison to be burned at the stake. When he came to the stake, he took his right hand and put it in the flame. He said, the hand that betrayed Christ ought to be burned first. As he put his hand in the fire. Time after time, you see this happen. Another man burned at the stake, John Bradford, turned to his secretary who was being burned with him and said, and said, Be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night. Let me ask you, where do you get that type of traction? Where do you get the ability to stand like that? And these are just a few of many throughout the generations, time after time after time. The Christian faith has come here on the blood of the saints. To say, I will share the gospel. Why? It is because a human soul has come to grips the fact that they have messed up before God. And apart from God, that there is no forgiveness. There is no hope. But they've seen in Jesus Christ that there is now hope extended. There is forgiveness extended to them. And they have seen the blessing of Jesus in their life. It has freed them from being uncertain about their future. There is now a certain expectation of being with God that shakes them to the very core of who they are, that even in the face of seeing them being sentenced to fire, that they step forward and say, you may burn this body, but you cannot kill my soul. My soul belongs to God. And it frees them, it gives them a joy that nothing in this world dampens. It gives them spiritual fitness, mobility to proclaim the gospel. It itself is an advancing in midst of spiritual warfare. When there is attacks on your family, when you see people who are suffering around you, who are dying around you, that when you see this in the community, you go back to the gospel of which gave you joy to begin with. I read a scripture As I think about this, Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Hear that. 
Romans chapter 8. Let that whole chapter hit into your mind, seek into your soul. It will produce joy in your life. When you read in Romans chapter 8 that there is no power on this earth can separate us from the love that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. He that spared not his own son, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? It goes back to Christ applied to our heart, to our mind, means that there is an ability, a readiness, a mobility. It comes from the gospel of peace that we now have peace with God, which matters forever. And it becomes the joy of our life. It becomes the weapon of spiritual warfare. When we say to ourselves, when we say to the world around us, let me share with you something that's happened to my life that has meant a lot in this circumstance you're dealing with. Let me share with you about Jesus Christ, what he means in this circumstance. Let me share with you how God can bring peace to your heart through Jesus Christ. You are about to die. You have the the diagnosis of cancer or heart disease. Let me share with you about Jesus Christ and what that means in your life. You've got ruined relationships around you. Let me share with you about Jesus Christ. Your wife is being taken away. Your kids are taken away. Let me share with you the peace that can be found in this circumstance because I still believe that I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us one day prepares us, gives us mobility. A little while, Cameron, we're going to have a baptism. I've shared this with you. It represents you dying. That's how we enter into faith. We die. We die to ourself, our future, knowing that Jesus is taking care of our past and secures the future. Just as Jesus died and rose again, so too he in Christ Which means that from this point on, that there should be, by God's help, nothing that can take away the love of Christ in our life, nor our future, and that there is no force that is greater than the force of Christ in our life. Which means, come what may, kill me if you must, but Christ will prevail. The mobility of the gospel of peace. Well, I thought this might happen. Uh, we'll look at the shield of faith uh, next time as the Lord allows, which is simply Christ applied as a perspective of spirituality, what's going on. But let me ask you, is there a freedom in your life to proclaim the gospel? What are the obstacles that keep you from sharing the gospel? Those obstacles represent areas that have not had Christ applied. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And if there's an area of your life that you're not strong in the Lord, guess where Satan attacks? If it's in the fear of man, then that's where he'll go. If it's the fact that you don't like to be uncomfortable, guess where Satan goes? And he'll let you be comfortable all day long, as long as you don't follow Christ. He'll let you be comfortable all day. He'll let you not see a cross word from someone else, as long as you don't follow Christ. But what do you gain if you never cross someone? What do you gain if you're never uncomfortable, but you never have Christ and you lose your soul? Apply Christ to your heart. Let's pray.